Welcome everyone to the third annual Shaping Justice Conference. I am so happy and proud uh, to see so many students, faculty, and staff here committed to public service and social justice. Uh, I think as everyone in this room knows, it is not automatic that progress happens, that change happens for the better, that justice increases in the world. We might think that the arc of justice, uh, the arc of the universe bends toward justice, but it doesn't do that without people bending it that way. Uh, and so this event is a celebration of the conscious striving uh, toward increased justice. This is a, a, an event that sustains uh, all of those who are striving, and it serves as a call for more, for more people to join, for more commitment of those who are already engaged. I want to say thank you to the Public Interest Law Association, the Public Service Center, and the Program in Law and Public Service for the successful collaboration uh, that creates this conference. Thank you also to all those um, in the law school, law school staff, students and faculty who make the event possible, and those of you from the law school community, the larger university, uh, our uh, city of Charlottesville and surrounding areas, and those of you who have come from far afield, uh, especially those who have come to participate in panels and come back to the law school, uh, it's really a pleasure to have you here to talk about such urgent, compelling, and important issues as gun violence, immigration, immigrant rights, incarceration, and so many more. Uh, today's speaker is directly involved uh, and leading the conversation uh, on issues of criminal justice and he continues our streak of keynote speakers who are talented innovative and dedicated lawyers on the front lines of social justice so it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Philadelphia District Attorney Lawrence Krasner oh I'm not done you sit down <laughs> Anyone who has seen me give an introduction before knows I'm just getting started. Uh, <laughs> you thought I was done. That was just the preliminaries. Okay. Larry Krasner attended the University of Chicago, where he studied Spanish and literature, and then Stanford Law School where he served on the Law Review uh, and did clinical work defending uh, indigenous rights, uh, the homeless, and the indigent in criminal matters. Upon graduation in 1987, he returned home to serve in the Defenders Association of Philadelphia, followed in short order by a move to the Federal Public Defender's Office. In 1993, Larry opened his own practice, Krasner and Associates, to offer criminal defense with an emphasis on civil rights and police misconduct cases, beginning a 25-year career in defense of social justice activists trying thousands of cases. His portfolio of clients ran the gamut. Pro bono representation of RNC protesters wrongly arrested at the 2000 convention. Of DNC protesters wrongly arrested at the 2016 convention, both conventions of which were in Philadelphia. Defense of DACA dreamers, Occupy Philly demonstrators, Black Lives Matters organizers, and activists again against gun violence, just to name a few. Larry has taken a self-reflective and philosophical approach to his role as a lawyer in relation to these movements. There are long-standing and hotly debated questions about how lawyers interact with social movements. Do they co-opt them? Do they tame them? Do they enable them and support them? Are lawyers part of such movements, or do they stand apart from them? These are questions that lawyers in the public interest, lawyers in the social justice movements, have had to answer for some time. They're questions I've thought about 
as a scholar, and they're questions that Larry has thought a lot about in the trenches. Building on the idea of William Kunstler, who was the lawyer to figures like MLK, Angela Davis, and Kwame Ture, Larry describes his thinking this way, quote, historically, there's always been a problem of lawyers thinking they know everything, which is in fact a problem in life with lawyers. There's been a culture of activism making it clear to lawyers that the support is necessary and appreciated, but they weren't necessarily the leaders of the movement. They were the technicians for it. Against the backdrop of Larry's lifelong work in criminal defense and approaches to his work like this one as a technician for social movements, Larry's recounted the story that the staff at his firm burst into laughter when he said he wanted to run for district attorney. They thought it was a joke. It wasn't, as we all know. Larry has explained the impetus like this. I have, like a lot of civil rights lawyers, like a lot of activists, been beating my head against the wall of the DA's office in the Philadelphia Police Department for a long time because the DA's office in Philly was not enforcing the law against police. Somebody had to do it. Larry's 2017 campaign garnered national attention, highlighting a movement that has come to be called progressive prosecution. This is the idea that we must reallocate state resources and power to transform traditional criminal justice. As Larry put it, quote, you might call me a prosecutor with compassion or a public defender with power. Using that power means approaching the mechanisms of criminal justice in particular ways, including proportionate charging and sentencing, ending cash bail, curbing incarceration rates, and expanding accountability and transparency in police enforcement. Every single day, Larry says, we are trying to write policy and also have policy carried out. The culture must change. Larry's successful bid and his first year in office were not without difficulties, but that was the task that Larry set for himself, and it is one that he has taken up with gusto and much success. We are so honored to have him as the keynote speaker for Shaping Justice, for that is most certainly what he has done his entire career, not only seeking, but also shaping. It is what he is doing now and what he no doubt will continue to do for many decades to come. Please join me in welcoming District Attorney Larry Krasner. Now you can come up. Well, thank you for all of that excess applause and <laughs> giving me credit for a movement, which is how this usually works out. Lawyers taking the credit. I want to tell you a story. So this is a story about two suicides that failed, and this is a true story. So the short version of this long story is includes a grandfather suffering from severe alcoholism and taking it out on people. Uh, his son, who became a teetotaler, which I assume all of you know means a righteously sober individual and firefighter, but who seems to have worked out his demons at the expense of his children in various brutal ways. And finally, the hero of this story, who at a very young age was very nervous and was badly beaten by a teacher at the age of six to the point where vertebra were broken uh, and one of his limbs was broken. Not that long later, as often happens with children who are extremely nervous, he became addicted to drugs, eventually graduating to opioids, heroin specifically, and not that long after that, he was homeless on the streets in Philadelphia for a period of about nine years, during which time he was constantly using heroin. 
he will tell you that the reason he does not have the virus, as he puts it, and the reason he does not have hepatitis C, excuse my voice, I have a little bit of cold today, um, is that he had access to clean needles, and he got these clean needles from an organization called Prevention Point, which was an activist-run organization. It is one that very early in my career, I ended up representing, and I ended up representing them because the Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania decided that this was a terrible thing to give clean needles to people addicted to drugs and decided that it would somehow normalize addiction and it would encourage people who had never thought to inject themselves with drugs to run down to some card table underneath the L train and grab those clean needles so they could try some brand new drugs they never thought of, right? Um, he never did that prosecution. In fact, that Commonwealth of Pennsylvania Attorney General went to jail himself for corruption. Nevertheless, I got to know these folks in the process of preparing for what might come. Anyway, our hero in this story, after all of those years of addiction, became very despondent. His life was going very poorly. His mother died, and he was very close to her. And then a close friend of his died, and he decided he would take his own life, which he did by administering a lethal dose of heroin. Surprisingly, he woke up, finding that he had not succeeded in his quest to kill himself, so he tried another method. And that method was to go to the local subway and throw himself in front of a train, which he did causing a severing of his leg just above the knee and a severing of his opposite arm somewhere in the middle of his forearm. He was rushed to the hospital where he woke up and he was talking to the doctor and the doctor explained to him that he actually had a lethal dose of heroin in his system and even though he had awakened it was going to kill him. Except he was rushed to the hospital by an ambulance so that they could deal with that. And when he was hit by the train, the severing of his limbs was so damaging that he should have bled to death. Except the fact that his body was full of heroin slowed down the flow of blood. <laughs> and so it turned out that his two suicide attempts canceled each other out. And he is alive today. And he is not only alive today, but he has spent most of the last 12 years sober, no longer using heroin, he has survived these various terrible moments in his life. I do not encourage you to do any of this behavior. I think it's all very dangerous and you should not do it. But that is a true story about something that happened to a person. This man is a great believer in harm reduction. And he is a great believer in harm reduction because harm reduction, the clean needles, are what allowed him enough years and enough brushes with death to actually reclaim his own sobriety and reclaim his future. This man is a homeowner. He has been employed, not every day, but most of the time he is employed. He actually used to work at the gym where I went for quite some time. Um, and I raise this point because one of the things that we talk about when we talk about criminal justice reform and we talk about creative ideas around prosecution is we talk about what works and whether a public health model, whether a harm reduction model makes more sense for some of the issues we confront, or whether it makes sense to go the way we've been going, which is to build more and more jail cells and fill them 
with people who are, for example, suffering from addiction, which is a diagnosed mental health disorder in the DSM-5. And yet, under the guise of a criminal charge of possession of drugs, or under the guise of a criminal charge of possession of contraband, such as these terrible clean needles, or under the guise of charging people who are addicted to drugs for the minor offenses they commit all the time, so that they can get the money to sustain their daily habit, we criminalize it. Two days ago, it was either two days ago or yesterday, the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, which is where Philadelphia is located, filed the first of its kind, a lawsuit in the United States against activists in Philadelphia who are trying to set up what is sometimes known as a supervised injection site. It's something that I would call a harm reduction center, but it's sometimes known as that. This is an effort to get a declaratory judgment under civil enforcement uh, methods so that a U.S. District Court judge in Philly can tell these activists and these idealistic doctors and these idealistic med students and the former governor of Pennsylvania, who by the way is involved, that they should not be setting up a location that is a supervised injection site. Now, so you understand what a supervised injection site is, I have had the opportunity to go to Vancouver, where they have been doing them for 15 years. And it is a scary notion until you see it. The reality of what a supervised injection site is, is as follows. It is a place where people who are already addicted to drugs, who have already purchased their own drugs, go. So that rather than shooting up behind a dumpster alone, or shooting up in some flop house alone, they can shoot up in a place where they will be observed. It looks a little bit like a hair salon. You have numbered stalls where they go. They are open stalls so that volunteers and medical personnel can watch them. And they go and they take their own drugs. And some of the better ones, there is a spectrometer where you can take your bag of white powder that contains God knows what, but probably an unholy combination of extremely volatile fentanyl and heroin, and then maybe some drywall dust or various baby products that are put in there. You can see that and you can figure out whether the dosage is 10 times as much as you can bear or it's a dosage that you can take because your tolerance is there. And sometimes one of those doctors will say, uh, yeah, you might want to split that because if you take all of that, you're going to overdose. The doctors do not inject them. They do not provide the drugs in these locations. The individuals go to these booths, they take their drugs, and then they are observed. And after they're observed for a while, they go to another room where they don't have to be observed as closely, where they can sit around on sofas and chairs, and then they leave. And most of them come back another two times because most heroin addicts are going to be shooting up about three times a day, right? And what do they do in these locations if someone starts to have problems? Well, first of all, the issue with this particular drug is that it suppresses your breathing. And most of the people who die, and we had 1,200 people die in Philadelphia last year, which is down from what we thought it would be. But we had four people die a day in Philadelphia last year. What they do is they look to see if you are nodding off. 
And if you start to fall asleep, especially if you're falling asleep in a way that might obstruct your windpipe, or if your breathing seems to be too repressed, they do this terrifying thing. They rub your shoulders. If that doesn't work, they do the sternum thing. They rub your sternum. And if that doesn't work, they may move your body position, move this arm, shake you a little bit to wake you up. And if that doesn't work, then we get really medical. They bring out an oxygen tank and they give you some oxygen. And if that doesn't work, they get out naloxone, which is a chemical that will wake you up. Make you feel real bad too, but it will wake you up. This is a chemical that in Philadelphia right now, almost all police officers carry, and almost all of our librarians have it as well, because so many people suffering from addiction are going into libraries to have a place where they can sit, you know, where they can use a bathroom, etc. And we have this traumatic situation where all these librarians have to run out on the lawn and save people. They will go to naloxone and finally, if that doesn't work, they will contact an EMT and you will be taken to a hospital where no one seems to have a problem with people trying to save your life. That is what this terrible thing is. Our U.S. Attorney has explained that we can't have that because that will normalize drug use. That we can't have that because that will encourage people who don't use drugs to use drugs. For example, any one of you might say, well, it is Friday night. <laughs> and I know a place where they won't charge me, where they'll give me clean needles. Why not? I think I'll just go buy a bunch of drugs on the corner from strangers. That makes about as much sense as saying we can end teen sex by canceling condoms, which is actually something they used to say, right? That's about how much sense that makes. And yet, here we have, in his full-throated glory, an appointee of our current president who is ready to go after these terrible people for doing this thing. I am telling you this story at length and in detail because I think in some ways it points to the central and crucial issue about how we are going to view criminal justice moving forward. Are we going to view it on a public health model or are we going to view it in these antique terms that have become so familiar to us? And I suggest that we have to go towards a public health model. The number of people who have injected drugs in Vancouver, to the best of my knowledge, is about well, I shouldn't say number of people. Number of injections is about three and a half million. The number of overdoses is in the hundreds. The number of deaths after 15 years is zero. People who are dying from the injection of these drugs are dying from a medical condition they have, which is in the DSM-5, Substance Abuse Addiction Disorder, and they are dying from stigma. They are dying from the fact that we make them do this behind a dumpster. We make them hide their disease from other people. And when Vancouver looked at that, they had a different notion. What people who are addicted do for each other is they use drugs in each other's presence. They do it in pairs. At least a lot of the time they do. And hopefully, if they haven't both shot up at the same time in some kind of disastrous way, one is there to wake up the other. One is there to do exactly the same things we're talking about. If anybody can explain to me what is the difference between these harm reduction locations and an emergency room, 
I am ready to listen. What is the difference? They're like little mini emergency rooms where the only medical equipment they have are naloxone and an oxygen tank. And maybe there's a spectrometer. Why is this illegal? Well, the reality is this kind of stuff is illegal because it sounds scary. Because people don't understand that all you're going to do is have your shoulders rubbed, have somebody wake you up, have somebody be there to keep you alive. If you keep people alive long enough, many of them, like our hero in the story, who did a lot of dumb things in his life, many of them will find their own redemption. They will actually find a way out of this addiction, to the way to a job, a way to home ownership, a way to all these other things. Or we could just put them in a jail cell. Do you know what happens when you put people who, are, who have addiction to opioids in a jail cell? Well, needless to say, their tolerance is right here when they go into a jail cell. And then it's down here when they come out. The incidence of fatal overdoses from opioids for people coming out of jail in the first week increases 1,000%. Yes, I know, it seems like a kindly, decent thing to do to say you are addicted to this terrible drug and it is a terrible drug. At least you'll sober up if you're in a jail cell. Maybe then you'll think straight and you won't do it anymore. Except the part we're missing is they come out one week later and they die the next day from taking the same dose that they could have survived before they ever went in. We have a choice here, and the choice is really going to be whether we see this and we see many other issues of criminal justice as being public health issues and issues of prevention, or we see this as good and evil, right and wrong. We see it as simply a binary situation where you are the worst thing you ever did. For those of you who have read the book Just Mercy by one Brian Stevenson, one of our greatest attorneys of, well, this century, um, who just seems to keep winning in front of Supreme Courts that you would think were unlikely to let him win. His book, Just Mercy, talks at length about the notion that people, even killers, are not the worst thing they ever did. There is another side to that, which is that you are not the worst thing that ever happened to you. And the reason I say that is in addition to dealing with the fascinating developing issues around harm reduction in Philadelphia, which has all sorts of other benefits in terms of clean needles, you know, being available, stopping the spread of disease, keeping dirty needles off the street, children not having to witness the things happening outside that could be happening inside where it's beyond their view. We have, you know, other incredibly important issues that are coming down. We are dealing with issues of mass incarceration in Philadelphia that are enormous. Pennsylvania is the second most incarcerated and supervised state in the United States, meaning if you take parole, probation, and jail and put them all together, we're the second worst in the United States. We are the worst for excessive parole, and we are the second worst for the combination of parole and probation for a lot of reasons, some of them statutory, some of them some other ones, some of them having to do with mandatory sentencing. Pennsylvania, for example, is only one of four states where if you are involved in a robbery but do not touch the gun and someone is killed in that robbery, your sentence will be life without any possibility of parole. It's only four states that do that. It is the only state in the United States where you can receive a period of probation for a misdemeanor that is as long as the maximum 
of the sentence. And so we have ended up in Pennsylvania with an 800% increase in our jail population, while the rest of the United States has embarrassed itself with a 500% increase in the jail population, making us the most incarcerated country in the entire world, outdoing a whole list of tyrannies I can mention to you, but you already know which ones they are, right? Well, Philly somehow also managed to be the most incarcerated of the 10 largest cities, which has not made us rich because we're also the poorest of the 10 largest cities. And so when we came into this administration, we had some issues to face. And here is one example of how we tried to find creative solutions so that we could face them. We have a county jail system that when we came in had 6,500 people in it. And by the end of one year, it had 4,700 people in it. The way that number reduced in very large part was by coming up with a bail policy. And now what I want to talk to you about is a notion of progressive federalism, as they call it. Meaning, when your national government ain't got no sense, <laughs> and your state government ain't got no sense, maybe people in your municipality should have some sense. So Pennsylvania is, uh, at the moment, controlled by conservative people. And those conservative people who are mostly in rural areas, and I love rural areas, but Philly has a different, different uh, reality when it comes to criminal justice. They love their professional bail bondsmen. They love them because those people donate a lot of money because those people make a lot of money off of the process of getting you out of jail. We are not going to see a statute in Pennsylvania anytime soon that says you can't use cash, but you have to use other means of holding people in jail. For 30 years, Washington, D.C. has had a no-cash bail system. And so that you know, what that means is you're either held, and it doesn't matter how rich you are, you ain't getting out. So, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, don't do something terrible here because you're still not getting out. Or you're getting out, no matter how broke you are. This is not going to be about money, because as soon as it gets about money, you start to have prisons that are for the poor, right? And that system has worked for 30 years. It has worked well for 30 years. 88% of the people who are arrested are released. 12% of the people who are arrested are held. And when you look at what the 88% who get out do, yes, they go to court. No, they don't commit a bunch of new crimes. They do commit some, of course. They, some of them don't show up, of course, but that's true of every system. And very, very few of them commit violent crimes while they're released. It is generally recognized across the country as a successful system. The idea has now spread to New Jersey and Kentucky and various other places. But we couldn't do that in Pennsylvania because we have zero capacity to talk sense to our legislature, especially when their pockets are full of, of professional bail bondsmen's money. So we decided in Philly that what we would do, and Mr. Hollander, who's sitting right here, a proud graduate of your institution, both undergrad and law, was instrumental in this. We decided that what we would do is we would look for 25 offenses that were relatively innocuous, where we would have a presumption that we don't ask for any cash to get out of jail, right? And that, that would be our recommendation as DAs to the bail commissioner. Bail commissioner could do what they want, but we were hoping we'd be persuasive and they would go along with it. Those offenses were nonviolent. They did not include any sex offenses. They did not include um, felon in possession of a firearm. And they did not include high dollar, white collar offenses. 
The way we found these offenses is some of our tech-savvy people found that this particular group of 25 not only met those criteria, but that historically bail commissioners had been giving bails that required $1,000 or less to get out. So working people got out because they could scratch that money, rich people got out, totally broke people didn't get out. They might very well only have to pay $100. But because they didn't have it and because they couldn't get it, they would be stuck in a jail cell that would cost the taxpayer $135 a day. And they would be stuck there until they went to a court date where they might not even be looking at jail time. And that's what would happen. It was straight up a system that locked up poor people for things that we thought were not serious enough to require a real bail. So we did it. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, the judges and bail commissioners went along with it. And we saw the most precipitous drop in our county jail population that we have seen in a very long time. 6,500 at the beginning of the year, 4,700 at the end of the year. If you want to start quantifying that, what that means to a taxpayer, assuming about 50,000 bucks a year to keep somebody in a jail cell, well, you can do the math. And I think you'll figure out pretty quickly that that's a whole lot of savings. We have now gone back, and we're going to have an announcement in a couple of weeks. We have allowed academics to come in to see whether the freedom of these individuals has cost us something, meaning has that freedom resulted in the deaths of people, some spike in crime, have all the things our detractors said would happen, happened. Is the city on fire? Are zombies running the street? Did somebody steal your cat? Did all of that happen? <laughs> and, did all, and did all of these people run off laughing because they would have come to court if they paid 100 bucks, but they're not coming now? <laughs> well, I can tell you, um, which really is the logic that they were pushing. I mean, it is the premise, the fundamental premise of having people pay bail is that to get their money back they'll come to court no matter what right i mean i suppose in some cases maybe it's a little true but it doesn't sound real smart to me the news is going to be good and the news will be out in a couple weeks and it will not just be our analysis it will also be the analysis of academics who have looked at it we have our problems in philly we probably will for a very long time but the fact is that last year crime in philadelphia was flat Violent crime was down 5%, which left my retractors not knowing whether to cry or cheer. They can't figure out. They're very much opposed to crime, but they're even more opposed to me, so they're not quite what to do <laughs> to do with this one. Um, and yes, we did have an increase in homicides, unfortunately, for the fifth consecutive year, which is a part some of them don't like to mention. And we did have uh, some increase in shootings, which is extremely concerning and has to be a, a crucial focus for us. But that is what happened with that. And that is what happened with a different approach to this. Fundamentally, what we are trying to do in Philadelphia, and when I say we, I mean that sincerely, the reality is that um, this is a movement. you know, And it's not a movement that started in Philly. Anybody who thinks that, check. Liz Holtzman was doing some pretty cool things in Brooklyn a very long time ago before she was one of the first women in the US House. Dan Satterberg, who is a Republican, in Seattle has been doing some pretty good things, sometimes led by the public defender, frankly, but has been doing some pretty good things there as the chief prosecutor in an office where he served for 25 or so years, for the last six or seven years. Some of it informed by his sister's uh, terrible addiction, which eventually, due to 
degrading her health, took her life. Kim Fox got there before me in Chicago, and she has faced all kinds of uphill battles, but I have been delighted to steal some of her good moves, just one of which was that she realized that in Chicago, they had a retail theft statute that, like many states, works like this. Your first retail theft is a low-level summary. Your second one is a misdemeanor. And your third one, oh my goodness, is a felony, right? So when they looked more deeply at that, they realized that the jails were clogged with something like 80,000 people over two years for retail theft offenses. And she decided, I have the discretion. I don't have to charge these as misdemeanors, and I don't have to charge them as felonies. I can just charge all of them as summary offenses, which will keep people out of jail, and we can put those saved resources into other things to address the underlying issues, like poverty, like addiction. We can try to route this money somewhere else. And so she did that, and we did the same thing. We decided that was something we wanted to do. I think that was a good idea. There are other people in this movement. We have new ones. Wesley Bell in St. Louis County, which is where Ferguson was. Wesley Bell, who beat somebody he was never supposed to beat by 13 points with almost no union support because the people in that area were fed up and they had had enough and they viewed these criminal justice issues in Ferguson and around Ferguson differently than people thought they were going to see it. Or Rachel Rollins in Boston, who just won. And then there's Aramis Ayala in Orlando. And then there are, and then there are, and then there are. The list goes on. This is a national movement. It got here long before I ever showed up. In fact, we all have our club. We all get together periodically. And some of us don't quite feel the same way on things like the death penalty as others. And some of us don't quite feel the same way on other issues. I mean, this year in Philly, we decided we were going to stop prosecuting sex workers. Why? You really just like picking on people? I mean, seriously, you're going to prosecute sex workers for what? Because they suffered trauma? Because they have drug addiction? Because they're being victimized? Because that's the only way you can help them? Well, some of us think we can find better ways to help people than giving them criminal records, locking them up, and then saying, now that you better go get a job with your criminal record. Right? So, you know, the point is, it really is we. I mean, this has been a movement all over, but it's also we locally in the sense that we have very close contacts with activists. Now, I've been lucky and blessed in my career that I was foolish and represented activists for free for 25 years. <laughs> yes, it was a really dumb move until it wasn't. And it wasn't when it came time to run for office. And it turned out there, there was this incredible ground game of people who wanted to get me off their back because they all owed me. <laughs> And like most activists, uh, they know how to do things for absolutely no money, and they have a circle of influence. And since I also had absolutely no money for this campaign, and they had these great circles of influence, it became pretty viral. Not every city has that kind of an intense network of activists, but Philadelphia really does. It has a long tradition of that. It's the same kind of tradition I think you're going to find in a lot of broke cities, where people have been used to having to get things done without support and without resources. So we're a movement in Philly as well. We meet with activists all the time. They come to us with ideas. We just did a press conference the other day announcing major reforms in juvenile justice in Philadelphia, and we had at the podium a lot of organizations that used to sue our office or sue the city um, who don't necessarily agree with everything we've done. You know, a lot of times they'll feel like we're doing 1.0, and they'd like us to be at 6.0. 
But they were there, and they were with us, and they were with us for reasons. Those reasons are that they advised us, that we heard what they had to say, that we relied on their expertise and ours, and we did what we thought was ethical and appropriate to do. Just a couple examples, so you know what I'm talking about. There's been a very long tradition of trying to degrade and undermine the juvenile justice system by coming up with statutes that say, well, you may have been 17, but it's a serious crime, so you're going straight to adult court. Or by coming up with systems that make it easier and easier to take juveniles and move them from juvenile court to adult court. The focus of juvenile court has always been rehabilitation, which is a smart thing. It is a good thing, because when you rehabilitate people, they don't commit crimes in the future, and they also reclaim their lives. And the focus of the adult system has been much more retributive. Well, there came a time when some bogus scientists, who now admit they were bogus, were calling juveniles super predators and other uh, de dehumanizing names, and were pretending that the crack epidemic was going to produce, yes, you guessed it, even more zombies who were just going to be a bunch of terrifying robots and do bad stuff to us. None of that stuff really happened. Um, but that was the time when all of this happened, when we decided that the, the wave of monsters is coming, and so we have to really kind of eliminate this juvenile court thing and make everything adult court. They're wolf packs. That was always one of my favorite phrases. These are wolf packs of youth who are doing these terrible things. Well, it was all BS. It was all politics. It was all for the purpose of pr promoting individuals' ambitious careers, and we now find ourselves in another time. At the beginning of last year, when we started in office, there were 80, now let me try that again, there were 43 juveniles who were being housed in adult jails. At the end of the year, we were down to eight, okay? That is not zero, but that is real change. There used to be, the year before we came in, 225 kids whose cases would go immediately to adult court because certain statutes in Pennsylvania required that. Well, that does depend to some extent on what charges you choose to pursue. And if you are a prosecutor who tries to not only pursue the appropriate charges, but pursue the whimsical ones that are even higher, then you can guarantee that more of those juveniles are going to start out in adult court. And they had about 225 or so kids doing that. A year later, with this administration, 125. Among the 225, they would send a fair number of them back to juvenile court because honestly, they never should have been there anyway, about 65%, leaving about 80 kids being prosecuted as adults in addition to the ones who were involved in homicides, which are automatically handled as adults. Our rate of bringing people back from this smaller group of 125 was a little bit over 80%. So as opposed to their 70 or 80 kids in, in being prosecuted in adult court, we are down to about 20. Those are real changes. That is a faith in the notion of rehabilitation of juveniles and what that can accomplish not only for them, but for public safety. That is a different approach. And it's the kind of approach that we want to go, go toward. But it's easier for us to go toward that when we view ourselves as being a part of a, a movement, which we do. It's easier to go there when I see myself as merely a technician for this movement, which I do. I've got enough nuts and bolts after 30 years of being in court four to five days a week to have a pretty good idea what's going on and how we can change things and how we can get there. And I am also blessed to be surrounded by an incredibly capable team. Now there's about 247 things I could talk about that will bore you to death because we get pretty wonky at the Philadelphia DA's office. But I would be negligent if we went to questions before 
I shamelessly hustled future employees of the Philadelphia DAO. We have a slightly different philosophy in the Philly DAO. Uh, we are greedy. We do not just want to connect to a few feeder schools, as has been done in Philadelphia for 25 years. And this is, by the way, very common in conservative DA's offices, that one local school comes to dominate their flow of students, and then its graduates become their supervisors. And then they're not only disinterested in going far away to places like University of Virginia, but they're actually discouraged. If anything, they're hoping you won't come, right? That is not our viewpoint. Our viewpoint is that we should have the absolute best, the brightest. We want a level of diversity in everything that is way above and beyond what you have gotten in Philadelphia or you might have gotten in Chicago before Kim Fox was there. And so we went this year on a tour of 20 schools that were top 20 rated and five historically black law schools to try to increase that diversity. What do I mean by that diversity? I mean geographical diversity. The DA's office never recruited in Texas, in California, in the Midwest, with the exception of one school, before we did. And I also mean life experience. We have people coming into our office next year who are ex-military intelligence, ex-COs, ex-police officers, ex-professors, who have had these incredibly amazing experiences in their life. We also have a bunch of people who are academically elite. I'm hiring people coming off of two and three years of clerkships and they're at the circuit court level. We have people who are literally, right now, partners in major DC law firms who are contacting us who would like to come and be part of this thing because this thing is really exciting. So I know that there are some of you who would rather actually be part of history than watch it. I mean, money's good. <laughs> Money is a good thing. But money's not as good as being a part of history. And, you know, I was lucky when I came out of law school because we were facing this horrifying thing called the AIDS crisis, which was viewed at that time as being a plague. It was viewed as being incurable and fatal and mysterious and dangerous in its origin. And I got close to members of ACT UP early in my career, doing civil rights, doing criminal defense. Um, and my wife got to know them as well because she was doing disability discrimination and some of that overlapped with that kind of stuff. And so we got to be a part of the incredible progress and gains that have been made in dealing with the virus, in avoiding some of the terrible things that could have had, could have happened to people who were suffering from the virus at that time, in dealing with a movement to force Big Pharma to do research to force presidents who refused to put money in that research to do it. And those people won, and we were part of that. That's really cool. That's even better than reading about it in the paper, right? Well, you right now are watching, well, not right now, but as you read the paper every day, you are watching the civil rights issue of our time, and that is criminal justice reform. If you don't think that it is important, that it, this is the most incarcerated country in the world, if you don't find it disturbing that they're having strikes in Los Angeles because public school classes are 40 kids and more, then you are missing the point. The point is that our resources to fix things that will make us safer, our resources to prevent crime, have been hijacked by politicians who built jail cells to get votes that is what has happened. And the only reason we don't see what a crisis this 
form of incremental slavery is, is that they're all hidden. They're all stuck away in jails different places. And we also don't see it because the media only recently wants to talk about it. Mostly didn't because they made a lot of money off of selling papers that told nothing more than stories about terrible crimes, true stories, but true stories that fundamentally were a lie. What do I mean about that? So for 30 years, crime has gone down essentially every year. For the last 30 years, that is a fact. When they polled people every single year about whether crime is going up or down, every single year, the US population said 65% to 35% crime is going up. Where do you think they got that impression? Where do you think they got it? They got it from Willie Horton. They got it from fiction. They got it from a long tradition of media making money and getting clicks off of telling you stories that humans love to hear and read. Scary stories about terrible crimes that are true, but tell us nothing about the reality of the bigger picture of what is happening with crimes. And finally, they got it from politicians who were driven above all else by the desire to advance. And fear is good politics. And so that's how we got here. So this has become the civil rights issue of our time. Because when you do policy for years and years and years based upon things that are untrue and based upon self-interest, you can get where we are right now with a situation where one in three black men will experience jail in their lifetime. The only reason I got elected, the only reason, is because unlike the elite in the court system, and I'm, you know, I am married to a judge. She's been a judge for 18 years. I'm not hating on judges here, right? The elite in the court system don't get it. And the elite in politics don't get it. They don't get it. The fact is, young people in particular, millennials in particular, get it. I don't know how. But they do. It's not like they've all been to jail. <laughs> but they get it. African-American women get it. They get it because even if they haven't experienced it, their male relatives have. They get it. We have a tremendous disconnect between what the people want in terms of criminal justice and what the insiders think they want because the insiders are doing what they do best, which is looking backwards for a path for the future. You can be part of the civil rights issue of your time. Or you can make a lot of money in a law firm, read the New York Times and hear about it. And then, honestly, you can also do wonderful things there in a pro bono capacity. <laughs> or with your donations to worthy candidates or something like that. You can, <laughs> you can do wonderful things there. So that is my shameless hustle to all of you. That if any of you, no matter how many years out of law school, should be interested in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office or maybe another forward-looking, progressive, and fascinating DA's office in the United States, you should think about it. One of the reasons we had to go all over the country to recruit this year is, is we learned from talking to some of our young attorneys that if we simply notified all these great schools that we want to do on-campus interviewing and we were the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, that what would happen is everybody who was thinking about being a public defender would rule us out 
and everybody who was thinking about doing the kind of work my wife did, which is work for a nonprofit doing employment discrimination of various different types, would rule us out. And we would end up with three candidates, only one of whom was someone who really would be down for the mission that we were going on. And so that is really why we had to go around, because we had to show up and say, as I think was mentioned in the introduction, there is this thing called a prosecutor, there is this thing called a public defender, and then there's this thing in the murky middle, which is a progressive prosecutor, which is a little bit like a, uh, you know, the Commonwealth's attorney with compassion, or maybe it's a public defender with power. But it is something in the middle. And now I'm going to try to see if I can offend everybody who wants to be a public defender here. And I will do that as someone who was a public defender for five years, so I'm allowed. <laughs> Virtue is nice. Victory is even better, right? <laughs> I mean, it's nice to be able to say, it's nice to be able to say, I could never do that. I could never send a person to jail. I could never do that. But you see, it's really not about you. It's supposed to be about the people you represent, isn't it? So if you are not going to be that district attorney, let me tell you who is. Jeff Sessions. He's going to be that district attorney. The opportunity cost of your virtue and your unwillingness to be uncomfortable with having to send some people to jail, the opportunity cost is that that district attorney is going to have the power to do terrible things to your client. What do you want? Do you want the virtue or do you want the victory? Do you want to feel comfortable or do you want to get down in this murky mess where I am and be uncomfortable with the decisions you have to make? I would respectfully suggest that your clients, your clients, the ones you would represent as a public defender, would rather have you in the prosecutor's chair than the person you're going to let get in it if you don't take that chair away from them. All right. So that is my tirade. <laughs> it is 621. I've gone over as usual. And I am delighted to take any questions, except I will not take any questions about particular cases for about 206 reasons, most of them ethical. Are there any questions?